In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I am going fishing this week. I can't remember how long we have been doing this. Ten years, maybe. There are four of us, and we all gather at Doug's cabin on the Piney River, just outside of Amherst, Virginia. Doug and I went to high school together, but he has risen higher in the world. He's now a fly fishing guide. I know that Doug has been up at the cabin this week. He will have made sure that it's clean, that there are fish in the river. He's not above introducing some stockfish if the native population has dwindled. He will have filled the kitchen, the refrigerator, and at least one auxiliary cooler. He will have tied a few of the flies that he thinks we'll need this week, and he will have filled his truck with extra equipment. I'm still not sure how he always knows what I'm going to forget, but he always seems to have it. Then there'll be one day during the week when he will go out with each of us to make sure that we catch something more interesting than the best catch we had last year. I am already feeling grateful. Maybe you have had an experience of someone preparing a place for you. A grandparent when you went to visit during the summer. A parent who maintained your room as a shrine long after you had left home for school. A friend, a partner or spouse who knows you and yet makes space for you whenever the two of you are together, whether you deserve it or not. I think of this kind of radical hospitality when I hear how Jesus talks to his disciples in the farewell discourse of the Gospel of John. Jesus is telling them that he is going to die and they are understandably afraid. They know how to follow him while he is with them, but they can't imagine how to make their way once he is gone. Do not let your hearts be troubled, he says. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Later, he reminds them, I am the way and the truth and the life. These are comforting words. They remind us that God loves us unconditionally. Things are going to work out. We are not going to be left out in the end, even if we lose our way between now and then, which we most certainly will. Maybe that's also why we choose to read these words so often at funerals. 
the promise that we will be with God in the end. That may also be why we choose not to read the next verse. Because in the next verse, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. For many of us, these words tend to spoil the mood. Even if we think we're in, we worry that others are left out. And if we're in the context of a funeral, what about people of another faith? What about people of no faith at all? Do we really believe in a God who would punish someone for not believing in just the right things? And while we're talking about it, is there any such thing as knowing the right things anyway? Doesn't each person need to decide for themselves what is right and what is wrong? Don't the differences between people and cultures and time mean that what is true for some will not be true for others? These are good points, I think. The good news is that's not what's going on here in this verse. Jesus is not making exclusive claims about salvation. He is not deciding who is in and who is out. He is not trying to scare anyone into making new commitments. He is just trying to calm and console the disciples. They've already made their commitments. He is telling them that they know more than they think they know. He is telling them that they do, in fact, know the way. He is telling them that they are not going to lose him entirely. Although he will not physically be with them, he will be spiritually available to them. He will be in them, and they will be in him just as the Father is in him, and he is in the Father. He is the one who in the beginning was with the Father, was with God, and was God. They have nothing to fear. As long as they are going to the Father, he will be there. Hold on, though. Just because we can explain away the most obvious, unhelpful interpretations of this verse don't mean that the New Testament doesn't claim certain things to be true, certain things to be universal, certain things to be absolute. We do believe that when we encounter Jesus Christ, we will be encountering the way, the truth, and the life. We do believe that when we read in the New Testament is the truth about God and the truth about us. We do believe that there are real consequences to not accepting the truth and surrendering ourselves to it. We do believe that the Word of God 
that we call Christ is final and unique. As a former bishop of Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams said, no one apart from Jesus of Nazareth expresses the truth like this. What we don't believe, though, is that we can somehow understand how God might communicate these truths differently to other people. We don't believe that Christians are the only ones who find what Jesus calls the kingdom of God, as in the kingdom of God is within you, or what Paul calls the mind of Christ, as in take on the mind of Christ. In the end, it's participating in the life of God which saves us, participating in the life of God, not our ability to say the right words or tell the right story about God. I attended a conference recently in which one participant asked the leader to weigh in on a dispute. His Christian friend had told him that if he did not personally accept the Lord Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, he was going to hell. The participant, a self-avowed atheist, thought that maybe his friend was locked into an egoistic structure of thought, and he wanted the leader to tell him he was right. The leader chuckled. You know, he said, I think that you are both locked in an egoistic structure of thought. Why don't you worry less about who is right and worry more about your relationship with God and see what happens? It's not helpful for either one of you to judge the other. Now compare the spiritual maturity of this conversation between the atheist and his Christian friend and the poem of a 14th century Sufi who's known as Hyphetz. Hyphetz wrote a poem titled, A Hole in the Flute, A Hole in the Flute. And it reads simply, I am a hole in a flute that Christ's breath moves through. Listen to the music. I am a hole in a flute that Christ's breath moves through. Listen to the music. It's a beautiful, I think, and intimate image that we could be so empty that the breath of Christ, the Holy Spirit, could move through us making music for the rest of the world. Christ's breath, the image chosen by a Sufi poet. So it's good to remember, I think, that although Jesus repeatedly tells people that their faith has made them well, he doesn't ever demand that they tell him exactly what they're faithful to 
or where their faith came from, or what creed or doctrine they might proclaim. He seems to care only that they accept and surrender to the power of love that his presence reveals. Jesus says you are healed because of your faith, but he doesn't ask them what their faith is. He sees in them an acceptance and surrender to his presence, to the presence of love, and that has made them well. I think it's also worth remembering that those ten lepers that Jesus healed, you remember that the Samaritan came back and expressed gratitude and praise The other nine wandered off into the night. But I can't believe that the other nine weren't also grateful or that their failure to come back to Jesus somehow caused them to have an immediate relapse. So, as we reflect on the verse, no one comes to the Father except through me, What are we saying about God? We're saying, I think, that we are all created in the image of God, all of us. But none of us, not Christians, not followers of other tradition, not those who have no tradition at all, are able to live into the fullness of what we are created to be if left to our own devices and desires. None of us can live into the fullness of what we are created to be if left to our own devices and desires. We need a Savior. Those of us who have chosen to follow Jesus should not be reluctant to proclaim Him as our Savior. We should not shy away from the opportunity to witness to what Christ is doing in and through us. That would be like reading a great novel and not having anybody to talk to about it. Others need to hear about Jesus the Christ. We, however, might worry less about how God is going to save others who, for whatever reason, do not see what we see. We could worry less about those who don't see what we see. Lest we start to think that somehow we are saving ourselves. Amen.